Hello and welcome to VMware Research High Bits, a podcast about VMware researchers and the research. I'm your host, Ben Pfaff. I'm planning to release one show a month, each of them an interview with a member of the VMware Research Group. Research often gets deep technically, but I'm going to try to make sure that we provide enough background to allow the show to be accessible to the average computer science grad student. That is, I'm going to try to bring you the high bits, the most significant bits of each person's research. Let's bite right into the first interview. Today, I'm here with Lalith Suresh, who's part of the VMware Research Group in Palo Alto. His research focuses on distributed systems, and his recent work is called DCM, uh, Declarative Cluster Management, which is a cluster management system that uh, works through declarative programming. That's not actually what we're going to talk about today, but before we really jump into things, Lalith, do you want to say a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, um, I think you pretty much covered the main parts of the intro. I work at VMware Research and I work on distributed systems networking. I guess the focus of today's uh, chat is going to be a blog post I'd written and gave a subsequent talk about, and this is mostly around advice, uh, some advice that I found myself parroting to students that I work with often and realized, okay, maybe I should, if I'm doing it, if I'm doing this repetitive task, I should probably crystallize it into an article so that I can just point people to it the next time, right? I came across the video that you produced to, to go along with the, the blog post. And I said to myself, wow, this is this is good advice. I, I wish that uh, I'd, I'd had this advice when I started doing systems research. So the title of it is low-level advice for systems research. What's the best way to introduce it? So as I say in the blog post and the talk, it, it's just, there's a lot of good advice out there for PhD students, but I felt a lot of it focuses on what I consider high level um, aspects of the PhD process, right? Like writing papers or managing your advisor, problem selection, things like this. But both as a student and sort of later as well, I've always found that like I, I read these articles, I get like mega inspired, <laughs> I'd come back I'd switch back to my terminal and I'm like, okay, wow, okay, uh, my system's on fire, my experiments don't make sense, what's going on, right? Like, and this was basically an effort at sort of distilling down some advice to help with, you know, this daily battles that we fight on the trenches as systems researchers. And the hope here was that this advice is actionable. Like, you can read it, you can immediately go back to your project, apply that bullet, and hopefully take away some of the chaos that you would typically experience building systems. I am calling it low-level advice, just. It's well. low-level because it's all about the, the the building blocks of your code and your prototype and how that works into your research. So my standard joke is that research quality code only has to work once, but <laughs> that's not really true, is it? I don't think so. At least if you want to do it well, right? Like uh, there's a big focus in this, in the advice I gave on being able to run experiments a lot, right? I mean, as much as the meme about the way we do research is, you know, you run the experiment the day before the deadline, you got some graph and you submit it. Like, I, I don't think that's good in any way. And, I, I, and I've and i never managed to pull that off ever in any of my projects. Like, if I'm, that if I'm cutting it that tight, it's probably because, you know, nothing's ready yet. And I've never managed to pull off a successful submission doing that. And so what I advocate for is to always be in a mode as early as possible in your project where you make some changes to your code, you run experiments, and you use that to say, sort of refine your hypothesis, right? Make sure you're on the right track. So if you want to be in a mode where you're constantly running experiments, then really like your experiment infrastructure is not something that you run once, but it's you, just, you really should be losing count of how often you're 
running all of this um, as part of your research, right? One of the things I, I noticed about your your blog is that you sound really organized. I I, I don't always feel like I, I know exactly what I'm doing, especially when I uh, when I'm just starting experiments. Another one of my standard jokes is that if you know what you're doing, it's not research. Uh, how do you go from just having an idea to having that first experiment pinned down well enough that you can build something and you can have uh, some confidence that you're doing it right? That's a pretty good question. So I think the what I call an experiment here is a bit loose, I would say, right? Like in some sense, you want to, like, how do you validate your question, right? And in some cases, it's really like a performance experiment where you plot a graph, you compare performance of two systems, something like that. In other cases, for example, with DCM, um, the, the main contribution there was a programming model, a new way to build things, which will hopefully you know, make things faster, a lot less work to build and so on, right? So over there, the first experiment that we did, care quotes, was to basically prototype something that we could, like get to a prototype that we could run as soon as possible within an actual system and seeing that work end to end. That was the first experiment that we did, right? And in that particular case, there wasn't even really a performance question. I mean, the system was not, the, the particular logic that we were playing with was not performance sensitive. But later when we went on to build this thing into say Kubernetes, where we were trying to build a Kubernetes scheduler using our scheme, performance was a concern from day one. So literally within the first week, we had an experiment set up going where I could sort of make small changes to the code and see the whole thing work end to end and see whether I'm on the right track or not. So it varies from project to project, I would say, but get to a point where you can get feedback about your idea as early as possible. And most often this looks like a proper experiment setup where you can actually uh, get a graph or <laughs> some other metric that you care about. Right? I think that feeds into uh, one of the things that you talked directly about in your blog. You, you talked about the idea of a tracer bullet methodology. Mm -hmm. what, what is that and, and how do you use it in your experiments? Um, this, is the, this is one thing where I feel like everyone who prototypes does this in some form or the other, but I never got a name for it until I read that Pragmatic Programmer book. Uh, it's a pretty old book. Uh, people recommend it for, um, it, it's a good read, especially if you're sort of getting started with building systems, more experienced system builders might not get a lot out of it. But what I really got out of it was that name, right? And the idea here is any large system that you build, and this applies just as much when you're doing, um, when you're not even doing research, when you're building any prototype really, is um, you're going to have to build several components that need to sort of work together before you see your system work end to end. The way they don't recommend you do it, and I as well, is that is to sort of start layer by layer and you build the first component, you test it thoroughly, then you build the next one, you test it thoroughly. And maybe a year or two later, you're finally able to stitch everything together and you find that you've missed the mark, right? Like, and the way to avoid that is what's called the trace of bullet methodology. And the idea is you kind of take the simplest possible input that you can imagine for your system, right? For example, if you're writing a compiler, like this would just be, you know, one plus one, evaluate that expression, right? Start with that simplest possible input and trace a line through your code, taking as many shortcuts as possible to get to the output that you'd like to see. And once you have that end-to-end -end version working, add more and more inputs, trace more lines through your code, and eventually you'll see the architecture kind of form in front of you, right? But the good thing about doing it this way is that at every iteration you see your system work end-to-end, -end, you get incremental feedback about where you're going with your system. 
And this is a good way to sort of like if you, if you do this and also are running experiments continuously, right? You can quickly iterate, and this is something I think is very important when you prototype. If I'm following right, then then the idea is build something end to end that works, mm -hmm. but maybe only for trivial cases. Yes. Another strategy that has worked well for me is instead of building it end to end, build the the part that I'm least sure about. Build the riskiest part first. Yes. Um, do you have any thoughts about that and how it how it might work together with a, a tracer bullet methodology? That is a very important part of following the tracer bullet methodology. I think like sort of take the biggest unknowns in your project and make sure that that first version that you build, right? The first bit of code you write is basically giving you as much information as possible about those unknowns. I can give you a concrete example about this. This, um, this actually came up in the Q&A <laughs> when I gave the talk, the video of which you'd seen. So this was a work that we, like I, I did during my master thesis and early years of my PhD. And we were building a programmable wireless network. And the main idea there was um, as a user, when you connect to an access point, we basically hand you a virtual access point. And the virtual access point is not bound to a physical access point. And as you move through the building or something, we can basically have the virtual access point follow you around. And we can play a lot of fancy tricks with this. But in order to pull that off, we absolutely needed to make something work with the Wi-Fi hardware that we had. We, had, we needed to basically lie to the device and say, like, you have all these access points on top of you, even if they don't. And the way the Wi-Fi card works is that it checks this particular register to know whether it should generate an acknowledgement for a frame that comes in. And the only way to control that is to basically write some values into that register. And we wanted to be sure that we could basically give it whatever value we wanted and hope the hardware runs with it, right? So if this didn't work, nothing else in our idea was worth pursuing because you know we couldn't be really run this thing right and of course this is the first thing we tested like literally day one like we hacked up put the atheros driver that we had at the time saw that this works and then we had the confidence to do everything else so what you mentioned is quite key you like use this methodology to basically take the riskiest parts of your project and make sure that those things work out well before you build more right so use this as a way to prioritize what to build first that makes sense. So uh, one of the parts of your blog posts that I enjoyed was where you contrasted your approach to building things, which makes makes use of a lot of automation, makes use of a lot of tests and so on, and starts to sound like something that's more production than I usually think of yeah. a research uh, a project being. But you give a lot of examples of how it's different. And I, I wondered if, if you wanted to, to say anything more about that. There's a big difference between um, some, something that, that's built as a, a research prototype in a very informal way mm -hmm. um, from a, a, a big difference between that and a production system. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're, you're advocating for adding some things that, that start to bring it closer. Um, uh, you're, you're talking about you know, yeah. adding tests, adding lots of automation, adding, adding all, this, all this stuff that, that starts to make it closer. And I really appreciate how you pointed out that there, there's actually still a big difference. And I wondered if you oh, wanted to elaborate yeah. on that at all. Yeah, so this actually comes from uh, experiences I've had working with uh, um, uh, fellow researchers, right? Like when we push to add something like tests in the system, the pushback sometimes that I get is that, you know, like, hey, look, we're, we're just, our goal is to produce a paper, not write a production system, right? I disagree that prototype plus tests equal a production system. <laughs> and that's what I was commenting on in my uh, blog post, because when an actual production system, there's just 
so many more things to care about, right? Like how do you do upgrades? How do you do versioning? How do you do, um, I don't know, backups, whatnot, right? And most of these things are often not relevant to a research prototype, but it's absolutely key when you ship something, right? But I, I really don't think the margin that makes a difference is adding tests. I, I add tests mainly to keep my sanity during the whole process, like and to stop myself from going into this mode of playing whack-a-mole, right? Where I make a change, I broke something, but now my experiments, now I have two problems in my experiments, right? Did my change work and did I introduce new bugs? Like this is all stuff I'm doing so that I don't have to worry about things going wrong during experiments. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, yeah. I I wasn't trying to say they're the same. I I just no, 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 appreciated no. you uh, you you drawing the the distinction. Yeah. So one thing that it, it does actually start to get closer to though, it, uh, especially these days when for a conference uh, you're often expected to uh, make your uh, make what you used available. It comes a lot closer to an open source project. Do you do you see uh, do you see it being uh, closer to one or uh, what what so what are your thoughts there? Um, there's clearly a lot of influence in my style based on my background as an open source developer. Um, and this is where I first learned, like, you know, how to write good code, how to write, how to write code that's, you know, that can only be accepted if you have tests in it and things like this, right? Like, so I owe a lot of my education on how to program seriously to the NS3 project where I was an active developer for a while. And what I do find is that, um, so what I try to do is as soon as I start a project, I try to make it open source as early as possible. And then I follow all of this, all of this advice that I've basically listed there. And in the end, I think it becomes a, a, like a usable open source artifact that others can sort of build on. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge advocate for doing the things this way because I'm also biased in that I think the open source model is a very good way to build software. And I think it's very, it's especially good for researchers, right? Um, I can't think of proprietary code being <laughs> a good model for doing research. The bulk of your blog post is sort of advice for doing experiments. So uh, maybe we should uh, talk a little bit about some of your, um, your more detailed points. One of the things that you start out with was to say that you should set up your infrastructure early. That would be things like making sure that you've got reproducible infrastructure and and so on. What thoughts come to mind when you think about that step in the uh, in the process? I think one thing I didn't write about enough is how all of this, like behind everything that I'm talking about on that blog, is some mistake that I made. All of that is in response <laughs> to some kind of blunder that I've done myself, right? So, um, like everything about say running into last minute disasters where your infrastructure died or you needed to, you know, so you lost access to some cluster you had and had to sort of get up to speed somewhere else. There's a reason why I'm advocating so hard for reproducibility because I can't name a single project of mine that did not have to go through an infrastructure migration. Right. And I, I mentioned so in the blog as well, like the, the first beneficiary and is going to be, you know, you yourself as the researcher of keeping things reproducible. Because trust me, you're going to have to switch infrastructure sooner or later, might as well prepare for it now. Itself, right? So what, what kind of infrastructure are you, are you thinking of? Uh, I, I do a, a lot of experiments where I can do everything on, say, one laptop, which is usually fairly straightforward uh, to mm-hmm. set up. But as your infrastructure gets bigger and bigger, it, it, it's harder. Uh, so what, what, what kind of scale are you thinking about to, to start out with? It helps to be able to run um, 
sort of experiments at different degrees, I would say. So it's always good, especially if you're building distributed systems to be able to run something on your laptop. Like that's the first mode of testing that you really should do. Like it's not just for the test, but also the first mode of running your experiment that you should try to uh, get up to speed on. But from the kind of work that I do most of the time, there's that. And then there's the stuff that I actually have to sort of present in a paper, right? Like say running on a large cluster on AWS, something like that, right? So here the experiment setup itself means preparing a bunch of VM images, for example, that uh, have everything that I need installed and can be brought up with just a single script, right? Um, so yeah, it's usually a matter of bringing up the right VMs with the right packages and binaries in it and all set up and ready to go to run an experiment. So this kind of flows naturally into your second point, which is automating things. You want to make sure that the entire experiment uh, can be automated. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems that I see here is just that there are so many options for how to automate things uh, mm -hmm. these days on, uh, on different platforms, uh, using different uh, languages and environments. Do, do you want containers? Do you want VMs? Uh, do, you, do you need bare metal? And so on. I guess you've probably found some uh, some common patterns that that work well for you. How did mm -hmm. how did you come across uh, those? How did you figure those out? And do you recommend that other people try to imitate those, or uh, is it is it better for everyone to try to find their own way? I think it helps to find out what works for you. Like I have, I'm fairly opinionated in the tools I use, and um, I don't actually enjoy all of them, but some of them just work and I'm okay with it. For example, Ansible, right? Like sometimes I'm amazed people do so much with it because it's really just some kind of YAML description of a series of workflows that you need to run. It's not great, but I prefer it over ad hoc shell scripts for some tasks. The way I arrived at these tools is again, somewhat organic. Like I think during my PhD, I was mostly using different kinds of shell scripts that I'd written or Python scripts to bring up an AWS cluster and so on. I started playing with Ansible after I started at VMware just because, you know, why not learn a new tool <laughs> on the way, right? Everyone's talking about them, so why not? For plotting, things like that, I've been using R for a very long time. And I sim like, I'm very hard to convince about using something other than R for <laughs> plotting. I'm yet to see someone be more productive with something like matplotlib than one can be with R and ggplot, for example. There, there seem to be as many uh, ways to plot data as there are researchers. Every time I start collaborating with somebody new, they, they seem to have some uh, new tool that they're, uh, that they're using for it. Uh, I, I used to use this, uh, this program called JGraph, uh, but, uh, uh, but I, I, I see you're looking at me because you've never even heard of it. I've never even heard uh, of it. So JJava it, or something? Like, it, <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not in Java, actually. There, there, there's some other Java thing called JGraph, actually. Okay. Uh, um, but uh, it, it worked fine for me for years. And then I started collaborating with new people and they'd never heard of it. So uh, so my last project used GNU plot. And it sounds like R is also a good choice. And that, that part of the infrastructure is not usually the, the hard part because it, it's sort of at, at one end of the uh, production pipeline. It's, yeah. it's the things in the middle where um, they've got an input and they've got an output. Uh, and, and so they've got to be compatible on both ends that are, are usually uh, the, the tricky ones. Mm -hmm. So the part in the middle that, so there's a workflow that I've, and this, this the part in the middle, there's a certain pattern that I've been following uh, somewhat early, since early in my PhD. And uh, what I tend to do is I, I, I try to collect experiments in a certain way where I have all the data for the experiment I want in one place. 
and I never overwrite files when I run, run experiments. It's always like an append-only process, right? Every experiment generates a new folder with a timestamp of when I started to run the experiment. And inside that, I basically collect uh, for every individual run, again, that's a folder. Like an individual run would be for one particular configuration of say system A, what traces did I collect by running a measurement, right? So you end up basically with one top level folder with a lot of lower level folders, each of which describes the uh, individual runs that you had and basically collecting a lot of metadata along the way like what git commit ID produced the artifact that whose graphs you're looking at right now, right? Like I want to be able to track that information through. So once you have such a folder or an archive, uh, this becomes what I call a raw trace or a raw data set that I then sort of run a bunch of scripts on that produces, let's say an SQLite file. I tend to use SQLite a lot for this. And this is what I call my process data. And it's all in a database, it has a schema, which means I really control what goes in, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, the good thing about, uh, and basically any sort of uh, plotting like plotting framework that you use will support this or any analysis tool you would use will support this, but you can basically read out files direct, read out what you need from the SQLite file in R. And I use that to then plot what I need, right? So I always have these three stages, one to collect the raw traces, the another to sort of, turn it into sort of a processed data database. And then another stage, which is just plotting and analysis to generate a report. The one part here that uh, where I have a few more questions is about the, the database in the middle, the SQLite uh, um, database. Are, are you talking about one of those per run or do you have a, a database that, that has, has everything for, for all of your runs? How, how, did the, how does that all? I, I've used both. Um, okay. it, like, so one thing with, uh, so like, I think for the last, yeah, for DCM, what I ended up doing is for each, like if I run an experiment, that's usually a collection of um, sort of a collection of traces and I produce one database per experiment. And then I can say, give me a report about that experiment, about that top level experiment, so to speak, right? So different experiments will generate different reports. Another thing I've seen people do is to collect all of this into one gigantic database, right? And then when you do the plotting, you basically say, I don't know, give me the reports for the latest five experiments or something like that. You can basically subset it, but yeah, both work. I've always used more primitive tools for sort of the, the bit in the middle that, that keeps mm -hmm. track of, of the results that, that then go into uh, the, the graphs and so on. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself using some of the advanced power of, of SQL to analyze this? Are you aggregating things? Are you doing complicated joins? Uh, is it just a, a format that's convenient for all the tools you use? What's the, what's the motivation, I guess? It depends on the project, but most of the time my traces aren't big enough that it warrants doing a lot of, like taking advantage of a lot of the complexity of say SQLite, right? So in the last project that I used this in, the, the tables I had to pull out were just fairly simple or at most there's like one where clause there, right? But doing this type of ad hoc queries if I need to gets very easy once you have it in a database. For example, if I do something in R and I'm not sure why my data looks a certain way. It's easy for me to sort of inspect it from SQL and then go back to the raw traces if I need to. It gets very hard to do the ad hoc analysis against a bunch of sort of disconnected logs. Right? I tend to find myself using tools like grep and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and awk uh, uh, quite a bit, but I, I can see how a more structured database would, 
uh, have have advantages from time to time. It depends also on the logs you collect. Like, so one reason I have this intermediate step is because sometimes a single line that I care about is usually constructed from, say, three different log events. Um, like saying, okay, here a request started here, ended here, right? So that's two different log lines, and I probably need to sort of cross-check some IDs between them to know how to sort of say compute the time it took between these ones, something like that, right? And all of this, because something like this might just become one line in a table, which is easier for me to inspect later than say, looking across different parts of the different logs. Okay, well, we've, we've kind of rattled into uh, uh, something that, that's uh, um, a minor detail there, which actually brings us to your next point, which is avoiding tunnel vision, um, looking at the big picture. So uh, you, you talk about how uh, system builders sometimes fall into a, a tunnel vision problem with experiments. What kind of problem are you talking about there? Again, this is like, I'm always thinking of myself when I write these things, but I tend to easily fall into this like sort of performance optimization rat hole often. Oh, I, I actually um, know exactly what you're talking about. I just wanted to get you to talk about yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I, I, do, I do this. I, I do this too. So, so keep going. Um, and, and I actually enjoy sort of performance debugging and sort of trying to understand exactly why something is only taking, you know, why something is taking, I don't know, a millisecond when I really think it should do, <laughs> do something a lot faster. Right? It's very easy to go down these rat holes and say sync like a week or two, and it often helps to sort of step back and check whether is this something really is this particular kind of optimization that important to the goals here, right? Like your your research paper ultimately is trying to tell people a particular story. It's saying here's an idea, here's a hypothesis, and what here's an experiment to validate that hypothesis. Is this particular thing that you're tunnel visioning on important to answer that question? And often I found that it's not, right? Um, and the, the advice on avoiding tunnel vision was uh, the way to get out of it was um, first of all, to like as I advocate in, the, in that blog post, to wait to see an experiment, uh, to, to wait to see a report about all your experiments before you iterate on a change and see the sort of full impact of each change rather than sort of <laughs> looking at say one particular benchmark or one particular workload or a small part of a workload, right? Like don't tunnel vision on these things. Look at the big picture of all your experiments before you iterate on a change. And the second thing was to write, right? Make sure you write the first few paragraphs of your evaluation section. And usually this means you're writing something like, in this paper, we um, we, we start with the question, is X a good way to do Y? And we, we answer that question with the following question, like with the following experiments, right? Once you write that out, you'll actually also um, um, get a chance to see whether you're actually spending time on the right kinds of experiments and collecting the right kind of data. And having that always on the side also helps avoid population. I totally support that. Um, <laughs> when, when I write a paper in what I consider a good way, usually I write the introduction first to try to convince people that what I'm writing about in the paper is uh, makes sense. And, mm -hmm. and to 
convince myself that I have a story that makes sense. And then I, I, I go and I, I try to write the evaluation section um, where I, I where and, and when you try to write that evaluation section, you have to figure out, you know, what are the figures, what are the graphs that would, uh, what are the tables, what are the measurements that would convince people that whatever you wrote in the introduction is, is correct. And it, it, it sounds like that's the approach you're used to. Totally, totally, yeah. Always be writing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you wrote a bit uh, about how uh, you should do lots of measurements. Uh, you thought it was important enough that you actually wrote it three times. Measure, measure, <laughs> measure. One of the things you talk about is watch out for mistakes. Don't just measure something, see that it's good, uh, and then declare victory. You gave a pretty good list of ways that your measurements could be wrong. I know that uh, I've, I've fallen into most of these traps myself. <laughs> my, my guess is that your, uh, your, your list is also traps you've fallen into. Uh, yes. That's where they come from. <laughs> uh, I, I know that, uh, that if I'm good at anything, it's usually because they've made all the mistakes <laughs> before. <laughs> so do, do you want to, to say anything more about um, measurement and, and how, to, uh, how to avoid uh, uh, stepping into pits? Yeah. Um, uh, so so the, the case I make over there is, uh, and here I'm borrowing a quote from John Ousterhout, is to uh, use your intuition to ask questions, not answer them. And often when we find a bug or some kind of performance problem in our code, um, our intuition will tell us, okay, I think it's X, right? And a very human sort of uh, thing to do here is to just believe your intuition first and go make the change, right? And I think, I don't know, as much as I say that advice, I fall into, call into it myself as well. Um, it's tempting to do that, but really don't. <laughs> right? uh, treat your hypothesis as a, uh, treat your intuition as a hypothesis. So is it X? Now, what could I do to confirm whether it's X or not? Do I need additional instrumentation in my code? Do I need more, do I need a different kind of experiment to control for that factor? Always go a couple of levels deeper to confirm whether your intuition is correct or not, right? Then always back up that type of analysis with the additional sort of data or graphs that you need before you make a change. Um, and I find that doing this often helps me, um, stops me from playing whack-a-mole with, <laughs> with my system and my experiments, right? That's all. Um, and, and the most dangerous way this actually manifests is when your intuition tells you something, you make a change and the problem goes away, but you're not entirely sure if it went away because of why. <laughs> why? Why did it go away? If you can't answer that, I think it's. Um, <laughs> oh, that's always scary. scary. It's when, scary uh, yeah. when when something changes and you it's... and you don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've I've had that happen, and uh, <laughs> that's that's the worst. That, they're really scary when they happen, <laughs> and even worse is when you you. Even even more scary is when you hear someone say, "I made the change; it's gone away. Don't it's gone now. Don't worry about it." It's like, wait, wait what do you mean? Don't worry about it. <laughs> you That's when you the bug. Do you really understand why the bug was happening before you introduced the change to make it go away? It's like that's yeah, that's spooky. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sort of thing happens less if you have good tests, in my experience. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So uh, we've talked about quite a few of the things in your blog uh, mm -hmm. and some of the things that uh, you talk about in more detail in your video, uh, but we can't get to everything. Uh, is, there, uh, is there something that we didn't get to uh, that you'd like to talk about anyway? Um, 
I, I think I'll just add one more point about the measurements. I think because uh, you brought up that line about um, um, don't celebrate too early. I think that's the flip side to so like sort of uh, being doing the due diligence to understand why you have bugs or performance problems is one thing, but the, the rule applies just as well when you see your system perform well, right? Like relative to the baseline. And again, it's very tempting once you see like, you know, the 10X improvement over the baseline to say, yes, we win. <laughs> um, but yeah, apply the same level of due diligence to both the baseline and your own system to be sure you know exactly why, why, why your end-to-end -end measurements look the way they do. And end-to-end -end measurements are some of the most misleading things that we rely on, I think, like because they have no explanatory power on their own, right? It'll just tell you you're able to do X transactions per second or your end-to-end -end latency is Y, but it won't tell you what's going on under the covers that's contributing to that, right? Um, so always back up your end-to-end -end measurements with lower level analysis to be sure. You can't explain your results, right? I I like that point. It's it's not one that I've thought about before, or one that I've heard people make before. That uh, the the bottom line is what people want, but it yeah. it doesn't explain anything. Yeah, it's it's good for the marketing brochure, <laughs> and yeah, it it's always useful in your abstract and introduction when you're writing a paper. But on its own, they don't have any explanatory power. So it, you always have to back it up with some other data. Usually. All of this came from an uh, entry in your blog. Is the blog someplace that uh, listeners should look to for uh, future uh, commentary about research? Is that something you regularly talk about? I, I tend to not blog often. <laughs> I'm trying to get into a mode where I write more, um, especially things that are not directly something I'd write a paper about, right? Uh, there's a lot of stuff you run into along the way that I'd like to just, I'd like to be a bit better about. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this type of content, just, you know, check out my blog, Um, and if you have any questions, you can email me as well or leave a comment. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's the only place I write. I'm not on any other social media per se, so. All right, that was going to be my next question. So mm -hmm. uh, if you if you want to talk to Lalith, then go to lalith.in and uh, can they find your email address there? Yes. All right, perfect. And I'll include that link in the show notes as well. Thank you for talking to me and I'll look forward to uh, reading your future blog entries and uh, of course, uh, your future research. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks for having me.